You're listening to Economics Matters, a Conference Board of Canada podcast. This series brings you some of the leading economic thinkers from Canada and around the world to talk about key issues in the economy. In this episode, we explore what's happening in Canada's labour market. Our guests this episode dissect what's driving an unprecedented set of challenges for both employers and employees. We'll explore how governments and businesses can navigate the increasing challenges they face. Our guests also share recommendations for what individuals can do to better position themselves for the labour market of the future and what opportunities there are today as the dynamics between employees and employers are changing with the new demographic realities of Canada. I'm Michael Bassett, and you're listening to Economics Matters. Canada's labour market is facing an unprecedented set of challenges. We keep hearing the dual realities of low unemployment levels, but high job vacancies. There's a loud and growing chorus of business owners who complain that they can't find the workers they need, and workers are increasingly expressing their frustration with the jobs they do have. From the great resignation to quiet quitting, from the turbulence that is afflicting industries as diverse as travel, hospitality, restaurants, and healthcare, to the ongoing pressure to address wages without creating a wage price spiral, something is happening in the Canadian labor force. This episode of Economics Matters will be examining the causes of Canada's labor market turmoil. My guests this episode are Mike Burt, Vice President, the Conference Board of Canada, and well-known economics writer, regular Toronto Star columnist, and Atkinson Fellow on the Future of Workers, Armin Yalnizian. Welcome, Mike and Armin. Good to be here. Thank you for having us. Let's begin by setting the stage for Canada's labor market challenges. What are the most important challenges you see in the Canadian labor market? I want to highlight three issues that are really important right now. Firstly, is addressing the growing skills mismatch in Canada. Even before the pandemic, the cost of skills mismatch was growing. We estimated that it reached $25 billion in 2020, which is about a 67% increase over five years. And of course, that only accelerated during the pandemic. Digital skills were a prominent example of where we saw big increases in demand in a very short period of time. And the key takeaway from all this is that we've demonstrated that we have a limited ability to respond quickly to changes in labor market demand. The second thing I'd probably highlight would be how can we make the best use of the people that we have? Not everyone is sharing equally in the current strong labor market. Just as an example, newcomers are about 75% more likely to be unemployed than those born in Canada. Other groups, such as racialized individuals, generally have worse labor market performance. And even women, although participation rates for women and men are very similar now, we still see low representation in many roles, including in leadership positions. Ultimately, how do we ensure that all people living in Canada are able to fully benefit from the strengths in the labor market? The last issue I'd talk about would be how do we address the rise in living costs? As we all know, housing and food costs in particular have surged since the beginning of the pandemic. Household savings did rise during the pandemic, but many lower income and younger workers were less likely to have built up financial buffers and they're more exposed to the impact of rising costs. Addressing affordability without sparking a wage price spiral is now a major challenge we all face. And if left unaddressed, we will continue to create additional labor pressures, particularly in high cost cities like Toronto and Vancouver, just because people won't be able to afford to live there. Armin, from your perspective, what's most important for folks to understand? Well, first of all, I just want to say how great Mike's comments are, and I agree with virtually everything that he had said. I would talk about not quality of work, but quantity of work and quantity of workers. That is a function of demographic change. Canada's not the only country dealing with this. Any country that had a baby boom after the Second World War 
is currently going through a mass retirement, not resignation or quitting, but the great retirement is unfolding right now. We have added about 650,000 more people who have tripped that wire from under 65 to over 65 since the pandemic began. We have fewer people in the 55 to 64 age cohort that would normally step into these shoes. Again, shared demographics, baby booms, baby busts. We have fewer people without newcomers. We're going to need new newcomers. But as Mike has pointed out, they have a very different trajectory in the labor market. Last year, 2021, a year of pandemic, for every single new immigrant we brought into the country, we brought in two temporary residents who came here either to work or to study. There is a handful of refugees in that group too, but it's by and large the people we are bringing in to pay for our post-secondary educational institutions because they pay three times the tuition or to do the work that Canadians apparently don't want to do at the wages that are being offered. The summary of point number one about quantity rather than quality is after 40 years of labor surpluses, which is what the baby boomers brought to the party, we are now looking at 10 to 15 years at least of labor shortages. The last baby boomer doesn't graduate to the 65 plus category till 2029. Labor markets are going to be tight for a long time. That's not necessarily bad news. It could mean that there are better matches between job openings and skill sets. You're actually deploying the skills that we have in our midst better. That is actually good news. But the second thing that it raises is the crisis that you mentioned at the very beginning, Michael, about what is happening to healthcare and healthcare workers. That's got a gendered dimension because the healthcare sector and the education sector, in fact, the care economy in general, is over 12% of GDP. It's bigger than auto. It's bigger than oil and gas. It's bigger than anything except the combined sectors of finance and real estate. And you really don't want an economy that's propelled by finance and real estate, as we have learned in the last couple of decades. It's a huge contributor to GDP, and it is unrivaled by any industrial sector with respect to the number of jobs that are in that sector. Health and education and social assistance, which is lumped into health, those two sectors account for 22% of every job that's in the job market. And yet we always think about it as some kind of derivative. It's like the thing that you do once your economy is strong enough to do it well. It's in fact foundational. It is as foundational to creating skills and maintaining health of the workforce as roads and bridges are to making sure that we can get to work and ship our goods. If our roads and bridges were collapsing at the rate that our air economy was collapsing, we'd have a plan and we don't have a plan. And that is really problematic going forward. We're going to be paying for that for years to come. And then the third thing I'd say that this moment really raises is the increased friction between employers and employees, not for wages, but for voice. There's an opportunity here for us to have less adversarial relations between workers and employers than we have had for a long time, because it's in everybody's interest to actually have the best possible outcomes, both in terms of productivity and profits, but in terms of wages and living standards. So I think there's an opportunity here to actually make every job a good job in an era of labor shortage. That is what is being presented, not just problems for employers, but real opportunities for workers to see serious improvements in their quality of life and making sure every job is a good job. With multiple challenges are likely multiple solutions that might help us to move out of this situation. 
Armin, where would you suggest governments should focus their time and energy? Well, where governments have been focusing their time and energy is in bringing in newcomers, <laughs> essentially adding supply to the mix. The type of newcomers they've been adding, even though we've heard a lot about the half million immigrants that are going to come in, we've actually opened up the taps for temporary foreign workers because the immigration process is so delayed. We know that more people is helpful, but better skills is also more helpful. And here we actually rely on the post-secondary system for very costly, in terms of time and money, certification. We could be doing better in terms of creating shorter-term skills upgrading. For example, in the United States, they have this thing called badging for skilled apprentices. It might take you five years to become a carpenter, a fully ticketed journeyman, but you can get a course in hanging doors so that the building of houses isn't slowed up by not having specific skills that would actually get the job done. We could and should be doing that in healthcare. We are asking our doctors and nurses who are retiring and burning out in droves to do everything from filling out computerized checkboxes to walking people down the hall to the bathroom. That is a crazy use of these skills. It takes five years to train a nurse, 10 years to train a doctor. We can do better by training people up in six weeks to six months, how to be a scribe for those doctors so that they're not spending all their time doing that. We could be training personal care workers in relatively speaking short courses to deal with patients' most basic needs, like going to the washroom and leaving nurses to do the bigger things or bringing in intake. Nurses' assistants, scribes, and physicians' aides are all possible shorter-term skill sets to be built on in a modular way and ladder your way up. If you want to keep adding to your skills competency, you can do that, but it shouldn't take five years for us to try and offset some of the exhaustion of these people in the healthcare system. That would be an area of skills-related focus that I'd really focus on if I was a government and also make it easier for people to find mechanisms for collective voice. Once we start talking to one another, instead of viewing each other as adversaries, we come up with really remarkable solutions. In an era of tight labor markets, more collective voice, whether that's through a union or sectoral bargaining, or even through third-party organizations that help navigate a system, for example, letting newcomers know what their labor rights are so that they don't get exploited. These are all completely doable things. And the last thing I would add to what can governments do is if you want more people to come into the country, build the housing for them, please, particularly affordable housing. It is very difficult to invite half a million new immigrants and over a million temporary foreign residents for study and work purposes into markets which are largely in the big cities where there's already a dearth of affordable housing. And of course, rising interest rates is going to slow down those builds. We can be putting more money into building housing, particularly where people are coming, the welcoming basins of the country, so that we can actually not just ask people to work, but ask people to live here. Since we're going to be competing with the rest of the world on this challenge, it's the places that can make themselves people magnets, whether that's an employer, a community, or a country. It's those places that are not going to have as bad a labor shortage problem. We have to get going on this. Otherwise, the economy is actually going to shrink and nobody wants that either. Mike, what about you? Where would you recommend government spend their time? Well, I would definitely agree with, I mean, on quick training programs, micro-credentials, it's an easy way to potentially address rapid changes in skills demand. 
I think the critical question is how do we improve availability of these programs and also how do we work with employers to improve recognition of those programs because that's part of the issue is if people have credentials that no employers recognize, that it isn't necessarily solving the problem around skills gaps. The other things I would suggest would be around better alignment between employer needs and formal educational programs. Even in longer-term programs, you still often hear employers are saying that the skills that graduates are coming out of school with aren't necessarily the skills that they need in the workforce. There's different ways you can address this, whether it's through program design, experiential learning programs, those sorts of things. And I'd also say quicker adaptability in the formal education system in terms of what types of programs are on offer. Generally, we're very slow to change the number of seats or positions that are available in different programs. Even when you see big surges in demand for certain types of skills or credentials, there isn't always a big increase in availability of spots in those types of programs. A couple of other things I would mention would be how do we identify and reduce or eliminate barriers to education and mobility within Canada? In terms of educational barriers, cost, access, in terms of your local communities, time commitments, these are all potential barriers that do often need to be overcome if people are going to acquire the skills that they need to be successful. And in terms of mobility, not all people are still able to freely move across the country in terms of having their credentials recognized in every province. The last thing I'd mention would be better forecasting on how roles or skills may change going forward. To help with this, one of the things we've developed recently is what we call our model for occupation skills and technology. It allows for short and long-term projections of labor supply and demand, and it can be cut in multiple ways, things like occupation, industry, skill set, region. With that type of information, you can be better prepared for how things may change going forward. So, for example, we've found that skills like systems analysis, complex problem solving, critical thinking, judgment will all experience very strong growth over the next decade. If we know that, how do we design educational programs that address those growing needs. When we think about who's going to listen to this podcast, you're going to have folks who are currently in a job that they don't like, or they're frustrated with, or they are unemployed, and they're hearing all of this discussion around, well, there's all these jobs available, and yet they're being told, no, you don't have the skills, or you don't have the experience, and you can't get that job. The tension or the challenge in the workforce seems to be quite substantial. It's one thing to talk about the systems, but from an individual perspective, what can individuals do to prepare themselves for either the times that they're in right now or the changing times as we look forward? Because this is not likely, from everything you've both told us, this isn't going to change on a dime. This is something that we're going to have to deal with for a while. What would you recommend individual workers do to prepare themselves? Mike, let's go with you first on this one starting point would be improve your resilience. You're able to weather any storm. We've been doing a lot of work lately into the importance of social and emotional skills, what some people call soft skills. Not only are those skills in generally in high demand, but they're also critical to many roles. And what that means is they're an important part of improving your resiliency, your ability to change roles. Continuing to develop them is an important part of having long-term career success. A second thing would be adopt a lifelong learning approach. So keep your skills up to date, and that way you can take advantages of any opportunities that come your way. The last thing I'd say is become better informed. There's a study done recently by the Labor Market Information Council that found only about one in four Canadians make use of employment services or labor market information more broadly. Really what that means is people are not as informed as they could be about what's going on in the labor market, what are the opportunities out there for them. 
becoming better informed is about developing ways to create, monitor, and access opportunities. This could be things like developing your network, monitoring relevant employers or job boards, things that may be of interest to you, and even understanding how your personal interests, how your skill sets apply to different types of roles is important. The other thing I would say around being better informed is anticipate and prepare. Don't wait for a crisis to come to you. We hear so often about people who get laid off, unfortunately, and they're struggling to find out what they do next. When people are in that moment of crisis, they're often less able to make those shifts that they may need to make. And so how do you anticipate that, help people develop their skills so that they're able to transition before that moment of crisis comes? You can think about it in terms of career planning and how it might be a parallel to financial planning. You don't retire one day and hope you've got enough money to retire. You plan ahead. You set clear goals, you plan to achieve them, and you set aside savings for unexpected events. And so I do think there's some parallels there in terms of career planning for people. The other thing I'd say around being better informed is be deliberate about where you spend your time and efforts in terms of skills development. There's lots of different programs out there. Understanding what is most useful to you is a daunting task for a lot of people. Taking some time and even getting some advice on where you should be focusing your effort would be important. I'm very struck by what Mike has just said and how it makes a lot of sense for a lot of people to get better informed and try and prepare yourself for greater resilience and try and anticipate where things might go. Sounds great. The moment is different. The moment is different than that advice that was handed down through the ages, well, okay, the last 40 years, where it's the worker that needs to do more to get themselves ready for any shocks in the labor market. Surprise. It's a different era now where there's going to be more required of businesses than of workers, more training on the job, better wages and working conditions. The advice I would give to workers, especially younger workers right now, because we're going to need skills of every sort from top to bottom, from the most incredibly technical skills to the most basic skills, we need to throw bodies at what is happening right now. There's just not enough people to do the work. Actually, the power is in your hands. If you inform yourself, you strategize, and you anticipate what's coming forward, and you expect better from your governments, because no individual employer should be required to be providing, for example, medical benefits, or childcare, or better training on the job. These are the sort of things we can get when we act together in concert and require a better and more level playing field for the floor of the job market, if you boost the job market from the bottom up, if you make the worst job an okay job, you have increased purchasing power, you have reduced stress, you have increased the ability to be mobile from one type of job to another. You've just given people more breathing room at the bottom so that they can prepare for training. At this stage, the minimum wage in the province of Ontario, for example, which just saw an increase of 50 cents to 15.50, making it one of the highest minimum wages in the country. It is well below the living wage in Ontario. And education workers in Ontario, where they've just had a strike, had been flatlined for a number of years in terms of their wages, receiving less than half. And by education workers, I include the childcare workers that we are, the early child education workers that we say that we need 85,000 more spaces for in the coming years. These people are getting paid less than a pet groomer 
if you get onto the Indeed website. Having a minimum wage that is a living wage wouldn't be a bad idea so that people have the time to do all those things Mike has said. There are basics that we should be asking from our governments. The trope used to be any job is a good job, go get a job. We should make every job a good job so anybody can go out and get a job. To do that requires the same rules for every job and that the minimum is not exploited mercilessly. If our only solution is more temporary foreign workers, there's no incentive for governments or businesses to improve the bottom. In an era of rapid inflation, that is not anticipating where the ball is moving to, which is more polarization, more anger, and more bargaining power in the hands of workers. What should workers do to inform themselves? Get together with others and have higher expectations of our own elected representatives, as well as our employers. Yes, there are going to be lazy workers. They're going to take advantage of that. But there are also terrible employers. There are stupid governments and smart governments. You know, you want to cast blame on who's not doing their job right. There's plenty of blame to go around. It's not monopolized by any sector. But if we actually boost the job market from the bottom up, we will all be more resilient when the next bad news comes, which it inevitably does. I agree that employers have a big part to play, particularly when you talk about training opportunities. The truth of the matter is most people who get the best training opportunities are the ones that would be generally best able to afford to make those investments themselves on their own. And so how do we ensure that all people are getting opportunities for, from their current employers for, for training? I would definitely agree with that. In terms of the living wage, we've done some research lately basically suggesting that minimum wages should be set at essentially 50% of the median wage across all jurisdictions in Canada that would cut that Gordian knot around politicization of setting minimum wages and around what is the potential negative impacts on employment, but of course, the potential benefits in terms of higher income for lower income people. We see some accordance with what you're saying in terms of setting a minimum wage in a way that is not politicized, I think it is important, uh, and it helps to address some of the affordability issues that we've been talking about. Armin, there was one idea that you had talked about in our first conversation around having employers set up benefits for workers to actually do this lifelong learning. I started off by saying it shouldn't be up to individual employers for doing lifelong learning. It should be a kind of rule for the marketplace that people can take leave to upgrade their education, whether that's on the job or stepping away for a few weeks, that there is an opportunity for paid educational leave. You know that if you are struggling on $20 an hour or less, you're not going to have any money to walk away from the job and upgrade your skills. You're not going to have time. You're probably picking up side hustle so that you can pay the bills in an era of hot inflation. Putting the onus on employers to provide these things, let me flip it a little bit. Any employer that provides paid educational leave, that provides paid sick leave, that provides training on the job that is paid, that provides living wages and extended medical benefits is going to have much less trouble finding workers than the ones that don't. Why don't we actually make it easier for all employers to find the workers by not making them compete with one another? Some are going to have low margins and unable to offer these things, particularly in the nonprofit sector, which is as essential to our infrastructure as public services, because often it's the not-for-profits that are providing these services. There's a way of delivering for everybody if we pool the risks and the costs of providing these leaves, maybe it's partly paid educational leave 
from the individual employer, but maybe it's also taxpayer subsidized in part, particularly for those that are working with low wage workers, which usually indicates that they don't have a lot of fat in the system, whether that's because it's a small retail business or hospitality business or a not-for-profit. You both raised important issues as it relates to the long-term train that is demographic change. And we've been hearing about this impending hit on our workforce and our society for at least 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. But it still seems to be catching employers, governments by surprise. Why didn't this transition happen in a better way? Was it the pandemic that we can blame for creating these conditions for society broadly to re-examine what we want in return for our labor? Well, the short answer is demographic change is the slowest moving train on the planet, and we didn't see it coming. Let me cut us all some slack here, because we just went through 40 years of labor surplus. You don't change a culture's mindset on a dime. You don't change a culture's mindset even in a couple of years. We're used to having more people than job openings. This is reversing right now. In the United States, there's two job openings for every unemployed person. Canada's a little bit better off. We've got a bit of a better match, but this is happening around the world. Nobody was ready for it because we are so used to workers not being important. This is a real profound cultural shift that we should have seen coming in sectors like healthcare because we knew we had an aging demographic amongst doctors and registered nurses. The nurse profile is getting younger because we're importing a lot of nurses. We're importing a lot of doctors too, but we're not certifying them. We've got a real problem in healthcare, but the solution has been, as it always is in Canada, import the solution. Well, if the whole world is competing to import the solution, we're going to lose the global foot race if we don't do something slightly different or make ourselves more attractive. And we're also not taking advantage of the people that are in our midst, our neighbors, Indigenous people, disabled communities, women. <laughs> We're not taking advantage of the people amongst us to lift up their skills and maximize their potential because we're looking for cheap still. I mean, I feel like I'm kind of in Groundhog Day. What's the best thing governments can do? Not raise your taxes and keep things cheap. Well, if you don't raise your taxes and you have more demand for services, you're either going to have higher taxes or insufficient services. Unless we can break out of this 1990s discussion that a good government is a prudent government and a prudent government is a smaller government, in the era of population aging where you've got more demands for public services, if we can't break out of that, we're not going to be a people magnet and we are going to lose the global foot race for people. Mike, what's your take? I agree that it's been a slow moving train, maybe because it was moving so slowly, some people didn't realize it was it was coming until it was right in front of us. But certainly your point. I mean, immigration has been a solution to this problem for a long time. We've been ratcheting up immigration targets in Canada for actually much of the last decade in response to slowing labor force growth. That's why in the most recent census, 23% of people living in Canada are either immigrants or permanent residents. It's a record high. It's never been that high in Canadian history. It does reflect the fact that we've been trying to bring in more people to address the demographic challenges. I totally agree about making better use of the people we already have. Part of what's happened in terms of the current tightness of the labor market, I actually would tie to what's happened with the pandemic. First of all, we saw immigration levels fall by about half during the 2020-2021 period. Part of the reason why we're saying we want to bring in half a million people a year for the next three years is because we're trying to make up for that downturn. 
And the other thing I would tie to the pandemic impacts is around older workers. Of course, retirement is not a new phenomenon, but what we have seen is post-pandemic, people over the age of 60 are generally less interested in working than they were prior to the pandemic. The participation rates of people in that age bracket are much lower than they were prior to the pandemic. There's different ways you can interpret that, but I would certainly say that older people, we know they're at higher risk of serious health complications as a result of COVID. It appears that some people are just choosing to opt out, right? If they're able to stop working, they're choosing to no longer work. I'd like to double down on the pandemic's impact too. All of the phenomena that Mike has just talked about, we're happening anyway. We were getting more people taking early retirement, particularly skilled trades workers whose bodies get really beat up after 30, 40 years working outside. And teachers and nurses who were also in this older age demographic and certainly got burnt out by being deemed essential during the pandemic. Can we lure them back in? Yes, we can with the right working conditions. We could also have great phased-in retirement and phased-out retirement where older people are helping mentor the younger people along because we do have this little hollow of 55 to 64-year-olds demographically. There's not enough people to step into the shoes of the people that are aging out. There's lots of things we can be doing. It's not like we have nothing to do. But the pandemic both revealed what we could do and then shut the door on it. We actually started talking about what we could do and what was important to do, and then decided, no, we're not going to do that. The choice is ours. I am not wildly heartened by what the last two and a half years taught us. To Mike's point, have you built up resilience? No, we have weakened the labor force because of this pandemic. We could have built up resilience for anything that came next. And we have chosen convenience over strength. We have chosen cheap over reliable. You have already highlighted that the minimum wage is not the livable wage. But the policy discussions right now, we've heard it from the governor of the Bank of Canada, where we need to have this recession and we need to avoid this wage price spiral because wages are pushing prices up further. I'd like to get both of your opinions on the wage discussion in Canada and what we need to think about. It is a very naughty problem. It's a well-defined phenomena. If you increase wages, it will prolong the inflation problem that we currently have right now. How do we solve that is a challenge. Some of the things we've talked about already address some of this. So for example, workers taking this into their own hands in terms of preparing for jobs that can give them a higher wage, a better living wage is important. I do think Different minimum wage policies is another way to potentially address this because you're at least addressing income challenges for those at the lower end of the income spectrum. Employers also have a role to play. We've talked a little about this in terms of there's things like benefits and stuff. Looking at the jobs they are creating, what are the tasks you're asking people to do? Can you recreate roles so that they are higher valued? Combine different types of tasks, different types of skill needs so that the jobs are both more attractive and interesting to people, and you're able to pay them higher wages. Automate aspects of it and also add other aspects to the job, other tasks that make it more interesting so that you're adding value to the organization, to the business in a different way. As economists, we talk about a wage price spiral that we don't want to trigger, but we know that we've got fewer workers and the answer to anything that is in less supply is higher price. 
we're saying that shouldn't increase wages because we don't want to trigger a wage price spiral. But I don't think it's doable. Some of the increase in wages across the market is not people asking for more money for doing the same thing, but actually finding a better job. And the next job is paid at a higher rate. So the composition of the jobs in the labor market will also potentially lead to higher wages, but that might not trigger a wage price spiral. But let's say more bargaining power does lead to more people asking to at least try and catch up with what has just happened this year. Does that just bake in this spiral? Mike's absolutely right that that's the history. But we are comparing today's inflation rates to inflation rates of 2% for most of the last 30 years. Maybe that's the anomaly. Part of that came from technological changes. Part of that came from geopolitics that permitted China to become the factory of the world. China's now worried about having enough workers. This is China, right? We should be sweating bullets if China's worried about it. But there isn't a cheap global labor supply anymore. Maybe we will not be able to keep prices low. And maybe higher wages are part of this massive global demographic shift. The only offsetting part to which is that, and we saw a little bit of this in the pandemic, where people could work from home. Well, if you can work from Barrie, Ontario, why not from Bangladesh? We're seeing increasingly people that have got the skills that the three of us have in this conversation. People in Bangladesh have the same skills and they cost less. So we are seeing for the very first time now at this moment in economic history, the possibility for higher skilled workers, software engineers, medical diagnosticians, people that do deed searches, so legal, paralegals, accounting, auditing, all of these things that people train for suddenly can be done by somebody in Manila at less than the minimum wage. We are looking at a very double-edged sword of wanting to keep prices low because, yeah, there are ways to keep prices low, and it will affect the people that have never been affected before by the blue-collar globalization of work. That's now going to the white-collar globalization of work. What I mean by a double-edged sword is if the people that are the most skilled have more volatility in their earnings and more competition for who can get the job at all, we will have lower revenues at the top level because these are the people that pay the most in personal income taxes. And personal income taxes fuel the resources for paying for our public services. Yeah, you might want to keep things cheap, but watch what you wish for, for you may get it. So you've both shared great, but daunting information to frame the complexity of the problems that we face. Let's turn to your recommendations for how to fix the situation. We need action, obviously, to happen soon. But as we heard in our first episode of this series, we also may be facing a recession in the new year. I'm going to give you a bit of a constraint in terms of your recommendations. Who do you think is best positioned to address the biggest issues afflicting our labor market? And what is the most important thing we can do in the next six months to make a difference? I think workers are best positioned to organize themselves to ask for more from their elected representatives and from their employers. Workers do have more bargaining power than they have had in half a century. They are not used to it. And if they organize, they can help move our conversation about why it's important to make every job a good job. And that also includes making sure that every job that is lost during a recession gets some kind of protection from the economic storm. 
the fact that we're entering six to nine months of potential recession, certainly very close to recession, lots of people will lose their jobs. This is brutal because at the end of September, we rolled back the clock to the old rules, the pre-pandemic rules, where only four out of 10 people who lost their jobs could access jobless benefits. EI is an automatic stabilizer. If you can protect purchasing power to some degree during a recession, it means your recession is more shallow and shorter. It's actually good for everybody when you maintain purchasing power. That is the lesson of the pandemic. It's pretty amazing what we can do when we decide we want to have each other's backs. That's the real lesson for workers reminding employers, we help you make the money. You can't do it without us. In 2021, we had the biggest influx of foreign direct investment Canada has ever seen. A quarter of it went to the Kitchener-Waterloo tech area, the companies that were there. And they couldn't deploy the capital because there was no child care centers. They had cut the child care centers and there was no way to get people to come to work because there was nothing to do with their kids. They had to be at work. For the last 40 years, we've been chasing capital to grow the economy. But if you don't have people to put that money to work, you're not growing. We've gone from 40 years of chasing capital now. We're looking at least 10 to 15 years of chasing people. We have the opportunity not only to grow, but to make every job a good job. We have the opportunity to actually move to the next level of great economies, economies that are working for people, not just for profits. Who wouldn't want that? Mike, I'm going to ask you the same question. Who do you think is best positioned to address the biggest issues? And what would you suggest needs to happen in the next six months? I always think of the labor market as having three key stakeholder groups, governments, employers, and workers. We've talked quite a bit about governments and individuals. I was going to take a minute and talk about the employer side of the equation. They can play a much bigger role in the training ecosystem than they do right now. Often they take an attitude of, I need skills. Somebody else should be creating those skills for me. How can they take a bigger role? It can be directly. We've heard some tech companies like Google actually creating training programs that are designed to fill their own gaps, putting people through those three, six-month training programs to address the needs that they have. could be indirectly. If you don't have the resources of a Google working with education partners to develop those short, targeted training programs that meet your needs. Another thing they can do is change how they do recruiting. We've seen already in data on job postings that employers are increasingly not asking for a five-year degree or a four-year degree. They're increasingly focusing on the skills they need. Really understanding what you need and asking for it or creating roles that are attractive to people because even the language you use in your job postings can impact the results. And then finally, I'd say, look beyond the usual suspects. (laughs) Just because... Candidates don't meet your preconceived notions of what you're looking for doesn't mean they can't do the job that you need them to do and does play into why we still see different parts of our population not as engaged in the workforce as they could or should be. Given the short-term nature, you mentioned the, the risk of recession. I do think that's important. We saw programs put into place during the pandemic, the CERB, the SUS program, that were explicitly designed to address income continuance for people who were not eligible for the traditional EI program. There were good and bad things about those programs. I think we need to be thinking very hard now and very quickly about what we learn from those programs to ensure that anybody who does lose their job in the next recession, whenever it comes, are able to not slip through the cracks of the EI program and people can still have some income continuance. 
Thank you so much for both of your insights on this vexing challenge of the labor market and really giving a very fleshed out understanding of where we are and what we need to do. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And nice to meet you, Yermin. Looking forward to a future conversation for sure. Same. Economics Matters is a Conference Board of Canada podcast. You can check out more economic outlooks and analysis at conferenceboard.ca. If you like what you hear, leave us a comment or rating on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing.